You're listening to the Perch Pod from Perch Perspectives. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Perch Pod. As usual, I'm your host. I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm also the founder and chief strategist of Perch Perspectives, which is a human-centric business and political consulting firm. Joining us on the podcast today is Maurice Shema, who is a staff writer at The Marshall Project, uh, which does nonprofit journalism about criminal justice, um, and also the author of the book Let the Lord Sort Them, The Rise and Fall of the Death Penalty in the United States. Um, Maurice and I also went to college together at Cornell University and have been very close friends for over a decade now, which is wild to think about Maurice. Um, but I just want to thank Maurice for coming on and sharing his perspective with us. Listeners, um, I can't recommend his book highly enough to you, especially if you are an American listener and especially if some of the issues that we talked about here um, ring home for you. Um, this is obviously a little bit of a different sort of topic for the podcast, but that's intentional. It's intentional for two reasons. I always wanted this podcast to just be interesting conversations with interesting people about things that are even tangentially related to geopolitics, and I think there are plenty of tangents here that relate them. Um, but also, as Maurice really describes well in his book, um, how we treat prisoners and how we deal with life and death really does go to deeper questions about what justice is and what our societies think justice is and what we think about as a collective of terms like good and evil. Um, and that really is what politics is all about. Politics is about um, justice and power and the interaction between them. So in that sense, this is about as raw as politics really gets because it literally is about life and death. Um, so I hope you enjoy it. It's a little bit different. Um, again, thanks, Maurice, so much for coming on. Listeners, as always, check us out at perchperspectives.com. If you want more information about the services we provide or you want to check out some of our newsletters, um, write to us at info at perchperspectives.com. If you have any comments about the podcast or any other suggestions, take care. We will see you out there. Cheers. Maurice, I call everybody my friend that comes on the podcast, but you're actually my friend. It's really nice to have you here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm thrilled that we're doing this. Me too. I wish we were doing it in person, but you know, COVID and everything else that's happening in the universe means, well, we're, we're still looking at each other. Listeners, you don't get to look at Maurice, but I get to look at Maurice while we're talking. Um, yes. So we're going to go off the beaten path of the usual topics for this podcast a little bit, although we'll, we'll try and bring it back home because fundamentally, as an old professor of mine used to say, everything is about, see if I get this quote right, everything is about sex, death, or God, I think you can basically boil everything in the universe down to those three topics. We don't have to go there. Um, but I wanted to start off by saying, like, I feel like we're probably going to go towards the abstract part of the conversation, because that's the stuff that I like the most. So I wanted to start by asking you, because you tell the story of the rise and fall of the death penalty in the United States in this book through the, the worldview or lens of a number of different characters. And I wanted to ask you who was your favorite character, whether that's the most compelling or the one you most empathized with or the one that was most intellectually compelling to you, who's the, who's the character that sort of hits you the hardest um, that you would want readers of your book to, to focus in on? That's a great question because I feel like I have my personal answer to that question and then I have uh, the character that, that many people have told me they found the most compelling. Mm -hmm. um, and these two characters are both uh, really the, the central two of the book. Um, they're both women who made their career as lawyers in Texas. Um, I sometimes like have to be careful when I say that this book, which is about the death penalty, mostly focuses on lawyers because I realize for certain people that um, is a turnoff. Uh, but I really came to see through the research that lawyers are these really interesting figures in our society, uh, 
especially in the context of social justice, of sort of public policy debates, who craft the sort of stories that we all then take in and make decisions based on. I mean, uh, you know, most recently, abortion is back before the Supreme Court, and it is an abstract constitutional issue that is getting fought out. But fundamentally, you know, um, the lawyers are the ones saying, well, here's a set of facts out of Mississippi, out of Louisiana, out of Texas. Uh, here's the experience of an individual woman, and they're kind of lifting these individual stories up to the public sphere, and then those are the stories that we all sort of see these policy issues through. Um, so I knew that that was sort of how policy works, and, and I think in telling the story of the death penalty, I had come to realize that so much of how we understand the criminal justice system is through the individual stories. This person uh, committed a crime, this person was harmed, this, uh, you know, is going to be society's response. And the people who tell those stories and who craft them and who get all the facts and, and put them together in a, in, in a, in a kind of series of, of events that then lead to an argument are lawyers. Um, and so the character or the, the person in the book, um, you know, I use the word character, but these are real people. It's a nonfiction book. I just use the word character from a kind of storytelling perspective. Um, for me, the one that I just kept coming back to is a woman named Dana Lynn Reeser. She um, is a, a lawyer who lives in Houston and uh, in the early 90s went to the University of Texas uh, as an undergraduate, basically committed to spending her life doing kind of social justice activism. Um, and I think this is sort of a familiar storyline to a lot of young people, either on the left or the right, frankly. And, um, you know, I, her idealism at that age really spoke to me. And then the way that she went from idealism to practicality really spoke to me. So um, what I mean is, you know, she starts in the 90s uh, as a student learning about the history of lynching in America, the sort of horrific history of violence against um, Black Americans in the wake of the Civil War and well into the 20th century. She comes to believe that the modern death penalty is an outgrowth of that. And then she decides, I'm going to go to law school, and eventually I'm going to um, represent men who are facing execution uh, today. And I think another thing that is so compelling to me about her is that nowadays in the public sphere, people like her are often held up as heroes. Probably most famously, a lawyer named Brian Stevenson who wrote a book called Just Mercy. Now that is a film in which the actor Michael B. Jordan plays Brian Stevenson. And it's really a kind of hero tale of, of the, the crusading, you know, defense lawyer fighting the machine. But um, I was also trying to tell this larger story about why America had embraced the death penalty. And crucial to that story was an era in the 1990s when the death penalty was tremendously popular. And because it was tremendously popular, the people who defended death row prisoners, but also really anyone facing prison time for committing a crime, um, were really looked down upon and kind of pariahs in society. And they, I interviewed dozens of these people who came of age in the 90s, and they all described you know, the conversation at a dinner party where someone says to them, how could you represent those people? You know, how could you... Um, uh, how could you, you know, put yourself on the line for these people who have caused tremendous harm in our society, right? And uh, today, things look very different, and there's much more of an understanding that, you know, many people who commit crimes aren't doing it because they're born inherently evil, but because they um, have been affected by all kinds of, you know, um, 
public policy decisions, you know, whether that's failures around mental health or housing, um, people who are born into terrible poverty. Um, and, and there's also an awareness that our prisons are filled with, with people who committed, you know, relatively low level nonviolent crimes, like, like possessing drugs. Um, and people like Daniel and Reeser have come to be heroes for sort of telling these stories. But uh, what I learned through this book research is that that took work. That took entire careers of people post-law school being pariahs in society and just slowly moving the needle and telling these stories of people who commit crimes and, and pushing us towards a kind of more merciful idea of what our criminal justice system could be. And that kind of long span uh, that kind of sets up the moment we're in now where criminal justice reform is sort of a household phrase uh, was really fascinating to get into. And Daniel and Reeser, I think, really spoke to me as this kind of irascible, zealous, um, you know, prophetic figure before her time. And those are those are great adjectives. I hope somebody describes me as that someday. Um, completely unrelated to the topic of this podcast and your book. I was arguing with somebody who's our age last night about whether we came of age in the 90s. And my answer to this question was unambiguously yes. And she was arguing with me that we definitely came of age in the 2000s. Do you feel like we came of age in the 90s or the 2000s? I, I, this is very funny because my wife and I actually have precisely this debate. <laughs> I frequently, not exactly uh, about when we came of age, but that I frequently think things happened in the 90s that actually happened in the 2000s because mm. they were the formative memories for me. And so as a result of that, you know, I continually mistake the early 2000s for the 90s. I mean, you obviously could never mistake 9-11 for having happened in the 90s, and that was formative. But but culturally, you know, the Backstreet Boys or, you know, um, movies that came out that were the things that we imbibed as um, middle and high school students uh, are all actually from the 2000s. And much of the 90s, we were kind of too young to take in what was happening in the world. Um, yeah, I know. guess so. My, my, my point was that, like, I feel like my soul or my worldview was forged with like the bouncy optimism of the nineties, whether that was its music and its dress like that, that was like my worldview and like 2001 shattered everything. Like it was a different world after 2001, but I feel like I was already somewhat formed by that point. Like even interacting with nine 11, like I had, I came from this, this nineties world where it was like, wait, bad things happen. I thought we were done with all this. Whereas I imagine that people who came of age, after 2001 have a completely different experience for them their entire lives we've already been at war they don't remember a period where everything was fine i don't know we don't we don't have that's to true finish. no i i think you have a point there um i think our our upbringings especially as relatively privileged you know especially really as white men in america um i mean we both had jewish upbringings which is a, a slightly more complicated tale but it was a world of of plenty in a lot of ways and um, you know, my sort of political, my first awareness of politics uh, was definitely the Clinton Lewinsky scandal. And mm. that was scandalous, but it didn't fundamentally suggest that, you know, the world is really broken. And, you know, it, it seemed like one leader was an idiot and did something really bad and our institutions were going to fight over it. But it felt like so low stakes in retrospect. Yeah. All right, we, we won't go too far on that. Um, I'm curious, you said that, so Daniel and Reeser is your, is, is your favorite character. Who is the character that everybody, who is the character that everybody else tells you is their favorite? And are you surprised that it's not one of the people actually on death row that is one of those characters? Or was that an intentional choice to, to make this sort of a story about lawyers as the stewards of these ideas? 
It's a really good question. Um, so the book does talk about a lot of people on death row. Um, and I knew, I want to be careful on how I talk about this. I knew that many readers would find the life experiences on people on death row very hard to sympathize with or understand. I mean, even if they could sympathize with the poverty, the dysfunction, the trauma, the violence that marked the early lives of people on death row, um, and that led them to the point where they committed a murder, I knew that as a, a writer of a nonfiction book for, um, you know, an audience of book readers who are, you know, going to pay 20 something dollars for this book, that that's a, um, those narratives, you kind of have to bring people to them in, in, the, in the sense that you can't just sort of like, um, like, like part of the problem of the criminal justice system is this empathic divide between uh, people who make policy decisions and vote and people who are actually affected by these systems. And lawyers are these really interesting mediators between those two worlds. They're the people who go to the jail, you know, because Daniel and Reeser would spend hours and hours and hours at the jail getting to know, befriending these people who are facing, um, you know, the death penalty or, or life in prison. Um, she'd get to know their families. She'd go to their churches. And uh, that to me, but she was a highly educated, you know, person who, who um, you know, had, had spent her formative years in Austin, Texas. So she was to me this very sort of interesting mediator between these worlds and uh that was another thing that i think pulled me towards her now the person that uh i most readers have told me they connected with and who emerged i think as a key person in the book later into the research process she was not one of the first people i encountered um, and she was also somebody that my editor really encouraged me to focus on um, is named elsa alcoa mm -hmm. and just the thumbnail sketch of her life is that elsa um was born in Kingsville, Texas, which is uh, you know closer to the border into um, a sort of lower middle class uh, Mexican-American family. Her parents both died when she was very young and uh, you know she's in middle school and she was um, in the middle of five siblings and they ended up um, basically raising each other without a whole lot of parental or adult involvement of any kind. It was kind of before the era in which child protective services might have swooped in and they um, lived as kids in a house together. And given that history, it's easy to imagine that some of them may have ended up in um, more dire circumstances, but most of them went to college. And uh, in Elsa's case, she went to law school. And then she had this illustrious career where she first became a prosecutor in Houston in the 1990s. And Houston was the epicenter of the American death penalty. It was the epicenter of a kind of punitive criminal justice system. And she became a prosecutor who sent multiple men to death row and many, many, many men to uh, prison for long terms uh, for violent crimes and was really bought in on that system, um, was really kind of mentored by some of these sort of tough on crime prosecutors. And then uh, as an ambitious, you know, Republican Mexican-American woman is a appointed to um, uh, a series of courts. She becomes a, a criminal court judge in Houston and then works her way up and is eventually a judge on the highest criminal court in Texas. Um, it's called the Court of Criminal Appeals. And there she has this entire turn in her viewpoint where once she's not just in Houston and she's looking at the whole state of Texas and she's learning about more and more cases, she's starting to see injustices. Some of those injustices kind of remind her of her upbringing. Um, and, and the sort of horrible life stories of people on death row, precisely the kinds of stories that Daniel and Reeser has been telling. And, uh, you know, 
over time, she becomes this sort of vocal critic of uh, the death penalty in Texas and also the American criminal justice system and is kind of slowly radicalized into what we would consider a more sort of lefty position these days. Um, and that entire, I think, um, life story and the huge turn in it, I think, is really compelling to a lot of people. And it in some way mirrors, uh, I think, the, the turning viewpoint of a lot of Americans over the last 30 years when it comes to criminal justice. Um, and so that's the story that really spoke to people. And I'm, as a result, sort of very glad that it's there, too. Yeah, I mean, it's it actually makes the 90s comment somewhat relevant because I, I do remember in the 90s, this was like a thing that people would argue about all the time. And it's not something people argue about anymore. We're arguing about gay marriage or marijuana legalization or abortion. Like th this one has kind of fallen off. Um, it has. Um, I interviewed a uh, longtime Texas Republican politician uh, named Jerry Patterson, uh, who was very involved in these issues. And he was a state senator in the early 90s, and he said to me that any time he was out in public back then and he would meet somebody, just a member of the public who was excited to meet a politician and nervous, right, and didn't know what to say, their, like, go-to gut question was, do you support the death penalty? And, of course, they knew his answer was going to be yes, and it would give him sort of a moment to, to have a little glory. Um, but the death penalty was definitely a, a culture war issue, and I felt like part of the process of this book research, which was essentially looking at the last 40, 50 years, um, was about reminding everyone that we used to have this other culture war issue that has fallen off the radar. And it's interesting to look at why it fell off the radar and what it says about us. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to kind of do a little bit of background. I don't want to give people too much because they need to go and read your book. You hear that, listeners? Um, but kind of kind of walk us through, you know, a Cliff Notes version of how the United States basically bans the death penalty for all mm -hmm. intents and purposes in 1972. And then in a period of four years, it, be, it comes roaring back and then has this renaissance and now is, is going into the slow death, pun, pun intended, um, which is the basic thesis of your book. But just kind of set the scene for us as to what happens in 1972 and then what changes between 72 and 76 that brought us to our current reality. Sure. Um, you know, one thing I feel like I'm always telling people uh, when I just sort of meet them, you know, out in the world and they and they ask about what I do and I tell them that I mostly write about the death penalty, they sort of think of it as something that's always been around in American life. And to some extent, that's true, but it's also uh, not true. And there are states like Michigan, for example, that haven't had the death penalty since the 1850s. So the death penalty has actually had this very chaotic history in the United States. And in the 1960s, uh, we almost abandoned it entirely. And this was at the same time that France and England and, you know, Germany, many, many um, European countries were banning uh, the death penalty and also banning things like life without the possibility of parole, these sort of really harsh criminal justice uh, sentences. And um, in 1972, uh, the Supreme Court ruled that the death penalty was uh, violating the Constitution. And not that, you know, executing somebody for a murder in and of itself violated the Constitution, but that the system of laws that we had in all of the different states that carried it out uh, was creating a system where who got the death penalty was totally arbitrary. One judge compared it to being struck by lightning. Of all the murderers in America in, you know, 1971, a random scattered handful uh, mostly black, mostly poor, but even among those populations, you know, random group were, were being executed. And 
that could have been the end of the death penalty in the United States uh, forever, which I think is really shocking. And instead, what happened was a huge backlash in which many states said, uh, if you're going to try to, you know, um, get rid of the death penalty, we're going to do everything we can to bring it back. And many, many states, mostly in the South, went about writing these new death penalty laws. Um, I should also say, historically, you know, this was uh, um, the Nixon era, and there was a really strong kind of American backlash to the civil rights movement. There was this sense that the civil rights movement had produced all of these gains um, that white Southerners were really angry about, um, whether that's in the area of voting rights or in the area of, um, you know, education and welfare. Uh, there was a lot of anger around that. And, and there was also a lot of anger in how it seemed like the Supreme Court was constantly giving uh, you know, criminals, quote unquote, um, new rights. Uh, I mentioned in the book, the movie Dirty Harry, which is probably familiar to listeners. And that movie, better than anything, encapsulates that era and that viewpoint of, you know, criminals are running amok and we're just sort of handcuffing police and prosecutors as they try to go after them. So that kind of rage, this idea that criminals, and it's a racially coded idea for sure, but that they're running amok, uh, leads to this backlash where states race to write new death penalty laws and uh, they start sending people to death row again. And in 1976, the Supreme Court um, revives the death penalty, uh, basically saying, you know, you figured it out. You have these laws. We're willing to let you uh, send people to death row again and start executing them. Uh, executions start to happen in the late 70s. And then this, that's the first couple of chapters of, of my book. And then um, I kind of tell the story about how the numbers grow and grow and grow in the 80s and 90s and fall and fall and fall from about the year 2000 to today. All right. A lot to unpack there. The first thing I want to ask is, um, because I think you're right about about talking about the the politics of the time. Um, because it was a backlash to the civil rights movement, but you've got the Vietnam War too. Mm -hmm. um, you've got the assassination of Dr. King and RFK and JFK. There's a real, um, I don't know, there's a real crisis of confidence or crisis of identity within the United States at that point. This is also the birth of the modern Republican Party. The Southern Dems basically get expelled from their positions by a Texan, good old Lyndon. Mm -hmm. um, you know, while he's dropping the bombs in Vietnam, he's also you know slowly unprying their hands from the power that they've enjoyed for all these decades and all this stuff gets wrapped into it. So, and I've seen a lot of people comparing the 1960s to the moment that we're going through right now. Does the moment we're going through right now feel like that to you based on the research you've done? And maybe it's not going to be about the death penalty. Maybe it'll be about reproductive rights or, or other legal issues that we're talking about. But do you feel that that's a good comparison or do you think that the 60s and 70s really stand alone on their own and we shouldn't be trying to compare them as if they were similar phenomena? I mean, I think the historical comparison is worthy as long as we're hyper aware of all the caveats. You know, I don't think that the 1960s and 70s had a uh, comparable rise in um, sort of anti-government militancy on the right, for example. I mean, the uh, the birth of the modern Republican Party and the Southern Dems was skeptical of federal power, but was basically bought in on government institutions um, mm -hmm. in, a, in a way that you cannot say of the kind of, um, um, you know, a large swath of the country now that, that voted for Trump. Um, but I do think that what is a, is a really clear comparison between then and now is the use of kind of coded 
language around race to anger people, uh, by which I mean, you know, in the 1970s and 80s, a major way in which the nascent, you know, Republican Party that we know today built its power, especially in the suburbs, was through the fear of crime. I um, mean, the death penalty was uh, kind of the, 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 the biggest, most symbolic response to this fear of crime, but, it, but not the only one, um, certainly just the construction of prisons and the massive ballooning of things like three strikes laws and um, zero tolerance policies that, that increase the sizes of, of prisons um, were part of that story too. But uh, I spent a lot of time in this book research looking back at you know Lee Atwater and the Michael Dukakis race of 1988 and uh, the way that Republicans, now in ways that they will admit after the fact, used race to kind of whip up uh, people to vote based on fear. Um, Atwater, I think, one, at one point, actually said specifically, you know, we used to use the N-word and now we can't anymore, so we just use the word criminal. And um, uh, many high up people in Nixon's administration have essentially admitted this after the fact. It's like not exactly a secret. Um, and I feel like I see strong elements of that in Trump's rhetoric uh, in 2016. Of course, he was more focused on immigration and referring to, you know, Mexicans as rapists and criminals. And frankly, Trump is not the person to look for uh, for coded language. He, he's a little more explicit. But, <laughs> but under Trump, there's a really large swath of, um, of American leaders who uh, do, in a way that very much reminds me of the 60s and 70s, uh, talk about the kind of menace of crime in a way that uh, feels like they're talking about race without talking about race. Um, you know, they're... they're uh, a lot of the research for this book involved reading um, trial transcripts from the 70s through the 90s, which maybe sounds boring, but is actually incredibly fun because these read as like these duels between the prosecution and the defense over mm. the fate of a human life. And um, there are these really uh, fascinating and textured debates about what we as a society should do to respond when somebody has done something awful. Um, and by something awful, I mean, you know, committed murder or multiple murders, uh, really kind of violated the social contract in, in the deepest possible way. And uh, I found those debates fascinating to read. And one, one reason why was because you would see a lot of the similar coded language trickle down from Washington. So um, you would see prosecutors say things like, you know, when you go home at night and you're walking the streets, you're always afraid of them. You're you're worried they're going to break into your house and, you know, um, kill someone close to you. And technically, they are talking about, you know, serial killers or or criminals or, you know, there's this there's a they're not talking about uh, people of a particular race. But you can easily imagine the, the members of what were often all white juries uh thinking, yeah, you know what, I am worried about those people. And they don't even have to admit to themselves that they're talking about um, Black Americans, but but they are. And this coded language just sort of um, percolates through all these different um, these different trials. And, and that, to me, I think, kind of lit up my sensors to where in current political rhetoric, when you hear politicians uh, talk about crime, especially in the last year, where there's been a major kind of backlash to the the, the um, police protests of last summer, um, people talk about rising crime, and again, they don't have to talk about race, but there's sort of racial 
um, elements to what they're saying between the lines that you have to have your sort of um, antennae up to catch. Yeah, that's a really good point that I hadn't thought of. And it seems to kind of be metastasizing almost into every single issue, not criminal justice reform. This is a lighthearted example, but my wife and I were at, at a Luke Combs country concert a couple of weeks ago. And um, she hadn't heard the Let's Go Brandon stuff. Mm-hmm. And after the concert, mm-hmm. I mean, like scores of people just shouting at the top of their lungs, Let's Go Brandon. And she was like, what, what is this Let's Go Brandon thing? And I explained it to her. And, and she, was, she pointed out, she was right. She was like, that's so stupid. If they hate Joe Biden, why don't they just say, fuck Joe Biden? I don't understand why we need all this coded language stuff. But I think it's, that's a very like low stakes example. But I think you're right that all the media ecosystems and social media ecosystems that we all live in, we all have our own vocabularies now for how we're talking about these things. Um, yeah. It probably makes it hard to talk about them to people across, who don't ha- share our political perspective. I think that's true. And I think the seeds of that story, you know, begin 20, 30 years ago. Um, and, and these criminal justice trial examples are an early example of them uh, starting to percolate. Um, I also think that there's a certain kind of pleasure of being in an in-group that has a mm-hmm. kind of winking vocabulary, even when you uh, know that everyone on the other side actually knows what it is you're saying, right? Like, it's not like Democrats mm-hmm. don't know what Let's Go Brandon means. But it's like there's a there's like a pleasure in kind of spitting in people's faces by by saying like um, I'm not actually saying you know f Joe Biden. I mean it almost reminds me of when we were children and you would like put your hand right in front of someone's eyes and you'd say I'm not touching you. you can't get mad I'm not touching you right. <laughs> it's that similar like there's a sort of childish energy to it. Yeah. Um, the second thing I wanted to pick apart from from what you were talking about before, though, was obviously the geography of the death penalty in the United States, which does get directly onto some of the things that are in the wheelhouse of what I do. Mm. Um, and to ask why the South is the one leading the charge here. I mean, sort of one of the you you tease us in the book with this thing about cultures of honor and about why cultures of honor create societies that might have been more conducive to slavery, and maybe that explains why the South um, has been a leader when it comes and it's and we can i i think maybe after this we'll have to um disaggregate incarceration and death penalty and talk about similarities and differences between them but for just the death penalty um why is why is the south the one leading the charge and why texas in particular is texas different from the south or or is it a southern thing so in the book, I make the argument that Texas became the epicenter of the death penalty for both cultural reasons and for um, sort of logistical, policy-oriented, structural reasons. And but at a certain point, those reasons uh, uh, become self-reinforcing and overdetermined. And so it's not—it's a chicken-egg debate, like so many other things, where you know part of it's that. Texas had this idea of itself as a frontier society that needed to use things like the death penalty to um, combat a more violent culture, uh, which is not empirically true necessarily, but it is a perception. And then the perception helps create the reality in which is we have then more violent responses to crime, which then produces more violence. So um, I think that the reason the death penalty is uh, so strong in the South is an impossible story to tell without slavery in the Civil War. Um, in the book, I kind of I do just sort of tease and d- I dabble in the sort of historical literature uh, uh, that tries to understand why um, the South developed certain cultures out of slavery. But of course, 
you know, slavery began primarily with economics at the heart of it, and then over time becomes a kind of cultural story that that people tell, you know, people tell stories basically to justify the economic arrangements, you know, that that um, black people are lesser than white people and thus more fit for working, right? And then, and then after uh, uh, slavery is abolished and you know the South loses the Civil War um, in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century, the narrative is without is we need big prisons and lynchings in order to maintain uh, uh, safety because black people are inherently more violent. And then it gets even more kind of abstracted in the later parts of the 20th century, but you still see uh, references in court to um, black people being more dangerous because of their race. Um, and, it, and you can draw a straight historical line all the way back to, uh, you know, the early 1800s um, without really even too much work. Now, uh, I think that, don't wanna lose my train of thought entirely. I'm trying to think of like, what's the best sort of point to jump off from there. Um, I mean, I think that uh, one reason why the modern death penalty has been so powerful in Southern states is because the cultural belief in the death penalty, the desire to have the death penalty, and also the political incentives to keep the death penalty, you know, the mm. extent to which uh, governors, state Supreme Court justices who are elected and local prosecutors who are elected kind of benefit politically from pursuing the death penalty um, is just so strong at all layers of government in Southern states. Uh, so you look at a place like California or Nevada they may have, um, you know, really gung-ho, tough-on-crime prosecutors who want to send lots of people to prison and to death row. But then you have Governor Gavin Newsom, who has no interest in executing anybody. And what I learned is that in order for a state to really maintain a death penalty system, which is a, which is a lot of work and a hard thing to do and it's expensive, um, in order to do that, you kind of have to have every single institution uh, you know, working in political lockstep, the courts, the governor's office, the local district attorneys. Um, and if any one of those shows some ambivalence because they're personally ambivalent or because uh, they're answering to voters who don't all support the death penalty, people, you know, like someone like Gavin Newsom, a lot of his constituents don't support the death penalty because it's a more blue state. Uh, it can totally disrupt uh, the extent to which the actual death penalty ever actually gets carried out. Um, so I think uh, there's this cultural story to tell about the South, but what that ends up meaning in the present, and I think you could extrapolate this into other policy areas too, is that in order to have a certain outcome, you have to have lots and lots of different institutions in society working in lockstep. Um, uh, and, and that's what we see with the death penalty in Texas as sort of the uber example. Well, and then to zoom out again, so that was sort of a domestic geography question, but um, I was just, as you were talking, looking this up, because I should have had these figures at my finger before, but um, countries with the most confirmed executions for 2019, mm -hmm. so this is pre-COVID, is, uh, I also love, they say that they don't know the totals for Vietnam, North Korea, and Syria, so I'll just leave that aside. Um, but the top six is China, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Egypt, the United States. It's not a list you really want to be on. And it's certainly like all of those countries are fundamentally different than the United States in many ways. Oh, yeah. Um, do you have an answer for why the United States has stuck to the death penalty while other liberal democracies in the world have basically outlawed them? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I think about that list all the time, you know, the fact that we, um, and this is a constantly a rhetorical point made by opponents of the death penalty in the US. They always are saying like, we, do we really want to be in the sort of human rights company of Saudi Arabia and China? Um, and the answer to that question that I've come to, and it, it's taken a lot of years to get there, is a slightly uncomfortable one. And that is that the death penalty in America is unique from these other countries because it is actually more directly the product of our democracy. In these other countries, it's um, in some ways a tool of authoritarianism. And the number of people who are being executed because they committed murder versus because they um, displeased the um, you know, non-democratic leadership of that country is sometimes blurry, right? In, in the case of like North Korea, it's extremely blurry. It's totally okay. a black box. You have no idea how many of those people committed murder uh, and how many of them just displease uh, the leadership there. America is not exclusively alone in the world. The other example that uh, is worth noting here is Japan, which actually also has a death penalty that is a little bit more democratic, uh, like like here. But the point I always make about America is that unlike all these other countries, we have the death penalty because we chose it and we want it and we profess to keep wanting it. And at this point, roughly 50% of Americans still say they believe in the death penalty, even after decades of examples of likely innocent people being executed, right? Even after uh, more than a decade of, of scandals in which uh, people died on the gurney in ways that look horrific and torturous and the public is made aware of this. So um, there's just a strong democratic impulse. And I think America, unlike Western European uh, democracies, uh, uh, has democratized its criminal justice system more than some of these other places. And to illustrate this, um, I'll just quickly tell a story about Germany. Um, so about five years ago, I, uh, I guess it was, Start that sentence over, Jacob. When was fine. It? Time in the in the age of COVID makes no sense anymore. It's very true. Uh, six years ago, not that different. Six years ago, I um, had this incredible opportunity to visit prisons in Germany, and uh, part of what was so incredible about it was that I went with American criminal justice professionals. I I went with uh, a delegation that had been put together by a think tank called the Vera Institute, and the delegation included four uh, commissioners of state departments of correction in America. So the top guys at, at, at various um, prison agencies, uh, some prosecutors, some, um, you know, policy wonks uh, and, and, you know, associated other people. And I was, I think, the only journalist on this trip. And the idea was that I would be sort of embedded in this delegation as they saw German prisons through American eyes. Mm. And... German prisons, uh, this may be news to listeners or not, are very different than American prisons. They mostly resemble college dormitories. Um, you know, you walk into anyone's room and there's a phone and a computer and, you know, there are communal kitchens where they can all use knives to cook food, even if they've been convicted of, of murder. Um, it's extremely uh, uh, um progressive in the sense that it, it, it puts a lot of trust in the incarcerated people. Um, and the people who work in these prisons don't see themselves as guards, which is the way that maybe 
um, corrections officers in America are likely to kind of be trained and thought of, and more to see themselves as something more akin to social workers, right? That, that uh, you know, they want to get to know the people who are incarcerated and help them therapeutically figure out what went wrong in their life that led them to commit, uh, you know, an assault or a theft or a murder. And then after, you know, a few years, they are released back into society. And, and at that, the longest amount of time that people in Germany, for the most part, are incarcerated is like something like 10 to 20 years. In America, very frequently, if you commit murder, you're going to be in prison for 40 years to the rest of your life. For 40 years may be the rest of your life, right? Because our prisons are so um, um, uh bad. <laughs> I tried to think of a stronger word or a, a more nuanced word than that, but American prisons are, are hellacious places to spend time. And um, so I had this really rich textured, you know, week in Germany. And uh, I learned that Germans as a whole, as voters, aren't necessarily always thrilled about this. You know, that, that there will frequently be a murder that is high profile and reaches the kind of tabloid newspapers in Germany as it would in America. And there is societal outrage and anger at the person who committed this crime. And uh, there's a sort of layer of society there. There are prosecutors and judges who are not elected like they are here who say, well, you know, society is mad and thinks this person should get the death penalty or be in prison for the rest of their lives. But we want a more therapeutic justice system. And so they're actually just going to go to prison for, for five years or 10 years. And um, there was a, a libertarian policy, uh, I'm just going to call him a policy wonk, a guy who worked at a think tank who was on this trip. And I remember a conversation with him where he said, you know, I'm very uncomfortable because this actually feels less democratic than the United States. It feels like uh, these judges and prosecutors purport to know better than um, the population what the policy answers are um, to crime. And I came away from that thinking, uh, you know, that is true. And in America, we always valorize democracy at, at this, you know, incredibly important thing that we wouldn't want to trade away. But when you get direct democracy, and that also allows for the sort of baser emotions of anger and outrage to sort of swamp the emotions like mercy um, and and um, you know sobriety that that you know judges and prosecutors could 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 you know present, and uh, we directly elect our prosecutors and judges, and they don't do that in Germany. And we have death penalty death sentences handed down by juries of just twelve people who are brought in off the street, which they do not do in in most Western um, European countries. Uh, and so I think the uncomfortable answer to this question, and this has been a long-winded way of getting there, is that uh, they have decided to trade away a little bit of their direct democratic uh, processes in the interest of having sober, careful expertise uh, lead them towards a more merciful system. And whether that's right or wrong is sort of not for me to decide, but um, I came away from that trip with a lot more clarity about uh the fact that American punitiveness is not just, you know, a bunch of leaders manipulating us. It's something we as a society have chosen. That's a great answer. It also, um, I'm impressed with us that we got about 42 minutes in before needing to stop and, and untangle um, incarceration from the death penalty and how they're related and how they're different. Um, so 
why don't we just dive right in there? Because I mean, the book is on the death penalty, but your life. Oh, hello, Ethel. Uh, a, a demon cat has just appeared on Maurice's screen. So if he dies suddenly, it's because Ethel is a demon of an ancient world. It's true, but uh, she may chime in with the relationship between incarceration and the death penalty. So I would be happy. Well, don't trust anything Ethel says. <laughs> it's it, true. It really is. It's it's the siren song of of your moral capitulation into degeneracy. Um. So wh- how is the death penalty similar or or different from? Um, did I say death? How is the death penalty similar or different from incarceration? Like, do, do you think about those things as fundamentally different things? Because you know, we're talking about the geography of this stuff. Incarceration rates are also greater in the southern part of the United States. Um, the United States also incarcerates at a much uh, more frequent level than most of the other countries in the world. Um, so h- how, how do you go about disentangling those things, or are they all part of a system and you sort of have to think of them in the same breath? They are all deeply enmeshed with one another, and so I do often think of them in the same breath. Um, the death penalty is a very rare thing, even in countries that use it a lot. I mean, just frankly, you know, I mean, I don't have the numbers for China, but, um, you know, the number of people who are incarcerated there versus the number of people who are, who are sentenced to death and executed there, you know, is uh, there's a massive distinction. And like America, all these other countries with the death penalty, you know, sentence to death and execute a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of people, of the people that are um, incarcerated. And in America, you know, there are thousands and thousands of murders every year. And this year, there are going to be between 10 and a dozen executions in the entire country, right? And so uh, the death penalty is this extremely rare uh, punishment compared to incarceration, but it's also an incredibly important symbolic punishment because it's the, it's the, it's the part of criminal justice policy that became a cultural issue in the 90s. And it became the way for uh, political leaders here to say to the public, we're doing something about crime, even if it was not a particularly um, efficacious way of dealing with crime, because you know, you're only uh, sentencing a tiny fraction of people to death. Um, so when I disentangle them, I mostly describe the death penalty as the kind of symbolic peak of a punitive criminal justice system. And I think that this would hold true in countries other than the United States. If you have the death penalty, then life without parole seems less severe by comparison. Whereas in uh, Western Europe, life without parole seems incredibly severe because they don't have the death penalty. Um, And they don't even really sentence people to life without parole. Uh, And then, you know, as a result in America, that means that 40 years seems even more lenient by comparison. Again, in Germany, 40 years seems incredibly punitive. Uh, and And it trickles all the way down not to invoke trickle-down theory here, but <laughs> uh, it, it does really trickle down culturally in the sense that when you have this incredibly punitive uh, um, possibility at the top of the system, no matter how rarely you use it, it renders everything else more lenient by comparison, and it kind of skews, and I don't mean that word judgmentally, but it, but it sort of uh, uh, empirically skews your perception of what is punitive and what is lenient uh, because it's a, it's, it's a part of the picture. And if it wasn't, then, you know, the range of possibilities for how to punish a crime would be uh, much narrower. Um, Yeah. I'll leave that point there. Yeah. It's, it's also difficult because the data here is, is, is harder to deal with because it's pretty clear, like who executes most of their, their people in the world. But, 
who imp- who like imprisons people at certain rates is is harder because you know China has an official rate, but then how do we talk about Xinjiang because that's probably millions right there, and then there's administrative detention versus prison versus this that and the other thing. Um, yeah, and how do we and how do we disentangle? I, I think something I struggle with when it when you talk about criminal justice policy in other countries, uh, or, or I guess I should say in um, authoritarian countries, hmm. is that the distinction between, like I said before, people who commit crime and people who do something that that angers the government is um, sometimes a hard line to draw, right? And sometimes a murky line. And in the United States. Uh, there are people who are incarcerated for, you know, um, like Chelsea Manning, right, who, who uh, do something that is sort of treasonous or that is perceived as treasonous to the government. Uh, but the vast, vast majority of people in America are, who are in prison are there because they are accused of a crime um, and not a crime against the government, like a crime against other people or a crime that the public has deemed um, democratically to be illegal, like a drug crime. So... Um, it can be hard to to disaggregate because because other countries are incarcerating and executing people uh, uh, for reasons other than committing a, a a crime as we as Americans understand that phrase. Yeah, no, it's it's impo- it's it's impossible to deal with because like I mean if if you kind of take out the big authoritarian exceptions like like Russia and China, I mean if if I'm looking at this list now of largest number of prisoners per hundred thousand people. And you got the United States. Then you have El Salvador, which is sort of the stand-in for all the narco states and all the drug terrorism that happens in Central and South America. So that's sort of its own bucket. You've got Turkmenistan, everybody's favorite dictatorship with the DJ president dictator. And then you've got random, you know, democratic countries in there like Rwanda and Costa Rica, um, which you wouldn't think would be on that list. And the United States is there with them. So I, I have no way to generalize that. But it's a it's hard thing a to do, list. and and I think. One thing about the death penalty is that as it gets, I think one way to think about it is that 500 years ago, pretty much every society had the death penalty and used it a lot. And it was like Mm -hmm. a a fairly solid fact of life. Uh, And over the last 200 years, with the rise of of human rights discourse and a kind of new understanding of human life as sort of sacred in that that sense, um, you've seen less and less use of the death penalty, um, especially. At the, at the one extreme, you know, no death penalty in, in the EU, and at the other extreme, extremely authoritarian countries like North Korea, um, and places like the United States, somewhere in between. And as the world generally turns towards uh, sort of away from the death penalty, the kind of data you get is noisier, right? And I think that this is actually true within the United States as well. Um, you know, the, for example, in the last several years, uh, the Trump administration was responsible for like 13 executions and states were responsible for, you know, roughly a similar amount. And had Trump not been in office, had it been President Hillary Clinton, the federal government probably would have carried out no executions. And the number of people sent uh, people executed in the United States would have dropped to like the lowest point ever, but then it would have zoomed right back up when a Republican was in office again. So it's like, as the death penalty disappears, internally to America, and I, I think you could extrapolate and say across the world, just the information you, you have to analyze about it is much, much noisier, and it's sort of harder to generalize in a global way. Mm-hmm. Which is a good segue into asking you, um, 
because I, the thesis of your book is that the death penalty is on the way out in the United States, and it'll be a slow, torturous you know, kind of deterioration, but that it will eventually go. Um, has anything that's happened with the Supreme Court in the last two to three years or since the book came out changed your mind? Because there's some weird stuff happening in the Supreme Court. It's true. Um, a story I sometimes tell uh, for a, to get a kind of like dark laugh is that uh, when I was proposing the book, I wrote a book proposal and went to publishers in mid-2016, and uh, a question I got over and over again was, well, what do you expect to happen with the death penalty under President Hillary Clinton? Huh. And uh, I was, I think, like many, uh, you know, surprised by not just that we elected Trump, but the sort of overall cultural swing represented by him. And while I was finishing up the book, he was pursuing uh, lots and lots of executions. And um, uh, you saw what felt like a turn back towards the death penalty. And I sometimes started saying that the that the book's, you know, subtitle could be the rise and fall and question mark of the death penalty and and to me it kind of wrote it kind of raised the question of going forward you know what are we going to do but i still when i try to take a step back from from the sort of individual news stories because you know when one execution is in the news it can kind of swamp uh your understanding and make it seem like the death penalty is much more prevalent than it is um you know, when Kim Kardashian is, is, is talking about how someone innocent is going to be executed, which has happened a few times recently, uh, it can seem like the death penalty is sort of rearing its head back up. Um, but I don't think that the events of the last couple of years hold a candle to the pro-death penalty backlash of the 1970s, um, in which states were racing to, uh, you know, meet the Supreme Court's demands. Now, there was a moment five years ago in which it seemed like maybe the Supreme Court might be on the precipice of abolishing the death penalty once and for all. And there was this moment in 2015-16 when I talked to a lot of defense lawyers and they were totally convinced this could happen. And you can imagine an alternate history in which Hillary Clinton was elected president and appointed you know, two or three people to the court and there was a solid liberal majority to just strike down the death penalty once and for all. And that might have led to a backlash. The sort of counterfactual history there is gets pretty speculative the deeper you get into it. But I think what happened under Trump is that he appointed, you know, three very conservative justices who are uh, very pro-death penalty as seen in their, you know, unwillingness to rule in favor of, of people on death row. And that just means that the story is no longer at that level, sort of much like how we can maybe think of abortion if the court uh, strikes down Roe v. Wade. By striking these things, by, by making a big decision like that, they kind of take themselves out of the picture and the story becomes about the states. And in the Roe v. Wade context, in abortion, I think, you know, we may be looking down the next few years of a lot of states trying to pass anti-abortion laws. But in the world of criminal justice and the death penalty more specifically, but I would really, I would really generalize to all criminal justice, uh, it's much. The trend is not as clear, and and, it, and it, if anything, it cuts the other way. So Virginia abolished the death penalty. It was the first Southern state to do so in the last couple of years. No state has brought the death penalty back after abolishing it. So it's just been a series of states abolishing it. Virginia, Colorado, fairly recently. There's some momentum behind an abolition push in both Ohio and Nevada. Go on and on about the sort of pictures in different states, but. Um, even in conservative southern states, 
the number of executions are going down year by year. And I wrote a story earlier this year uh, for the Marshall Project, where I work, about a bunch of very pro-Trump, very conservative state legislators in Oklahoma who are really worried about executing someone innocent and are pushing uh, uh, bills in their state legislature that would, you know, really um, um, slow down the death penalty. It won't, they won't end the death penalty. These guys aren't opposed to the death penalty in theory, but in practice, what they're proposing would really, really slow it down. So um, I still feel like the trend is all in one direction, even if the pace of change, again, gets noisy and slows down and speeds up here and there. Um, I just think that the next 10 years, it's going to be a lot of these, you know, the death penalty will continue to decline, but it's going to be a lot of messy fights. Um, and, and honestly, the death penalty might start to feel, I mean, I wrote this book as a work of history to look back at what was an important year issue in the, in the last 40 years. But I think in the next 10 years, the death penalty will only decrease in relevance to Americans as our criminal justice debates get swamped by the question of funding or defunding the police and the question of, um, uh, uh, you know, whether we want to continue having more than 2 million people in our jails and prisons at any one time. You, you wrote this book from a very sort of clinical objective point of view. So I, um, feel free to dismiss the question I'm about to ask as too charged, but, um, do you feel that in a certain, and I mean, you talked about focusing on lawyers and the, and the judicial system. Do you feel in a sense, though, that the legislative branch has let us all down in the United States on that score? Because we don't have any federal laws that have been agreed to across the board. And I don't, like, the Supreme Court shouldn't be deciding these issues. It, if, if we really love this democracy that we talk about all the time, our elected representatives should get together and pass laws that are, you know, that reflect the interests or the wants and desires of the country. And that just doesn't seem to happen. It seems like a, some kind of weird chess game where both sides are trying to push their pieces to the board and get the right justices and the right order so that they get what they want to subvert democratic principles. And then, you know, I get frustrated and want to light myself on fire. So just, just tell me if I should light myself on fire or, or, or if I'm being too harsh. Uh, you may be being a bit too harsh. Um, and I may be, a little too naive or optimistic, but I fell into reporting on criminal justice issues about 10 years ago. And pretty quickly, I realized that I enjoyed it partially because there was a lot more bipartisan energy and a lot less culture war feuding over it. Hmm. There was culture war feuding over the death penalty and criminal justice in the 80s and 90s, to be sure, and, and in the early 2000s. But by, you know, 2010, 11, um, when I was starting to get into this stuff, uh, you were seeing more and more conservatives back the idea that there's too many people in prison. Uh, and sometimes they came at it from a kind of Christian um, evangelical place where, where the argument was, we do really believe in redemption and we don't think we should throw people into prison for the rest of their lives, no matter what they've done. Sometimes it was a sort of hard-nosed conservative uh, argument about money, where it was like, we as a country are just spending way too many taxpayer dollars on these prisons that um, stink at rehabilitating people. And regardless of whether we think those prisons are abusing the people in their care, they're just, we're just not getting our bang for our buck as, as taxpayers here. Um, so it was that kind of hard-nosed thing. And then, you know, one reason why many conservatives have turned against the death penalty, and that's not something we got into, but I got into it in the book, is because it is also sort of the ultimate example of big government coming in and doing something really big, which is killing someone, right? Mm. Uh, it's sort of an ultimate example of big government. And that, I think, dilemma has really 
um, spoken to a lot of younger conservatives. So all those forces have led um, uh, conservatives and Republicans in the United States to look in a more complicated way at criminal justice. And although it seemed as though Donald Trump represented a swing back towards tough on crime policies, even Donald Trump uh, signed the First Step Act, which was a very modest, um, hard-fought, bipartisan congressional bill that made it slightly easier for some people to get out of federal prisons sooner. Um, I obviously want to hedge how big uh, of, a, of, a, of a change that was, but it was a meaningful, real, bipartisan criminal justice reform bill. And so to me, there was always something somewhat exciting about reporting on an issue that blurs the lines a little more and isn't just a strictly red versus blue, left versus right debate. And even though the world, America, American society is getting more and more polarized, uh, I still find criminal justice the sort of home where there's like a little more hope about the ways that um, conservatives and liberals can work together on issues and come to the table with very different, um, you know, viewpoints. You know, you've got the the conservative person talking about taxpayer dollars and the liberal person talking about racial justice, but they can together pass uh, pass things. And um, these Republican legislators in Oklahoma I mentioned are also a great example of that. I mean, one of them um, literally sent me a YouTube video of a song he'd written called Trump Train that was like a country song about get on the Trump train. And he was like, <laughs> I love Trump. Also, I am super concerned about innocent people being executed and I want to reform the criminal justice system. So I, I find some hope in this particular policy area that may be lacking in others. I can't think of a better place to end it than there. So Maurice, you'll have to come back. And in the meantime, thanks for coming on. We appreciate you, man. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Perch Pod. If you haven't already, you can find us under the name The Perch Pod on every major streaming platform. Subscribe for downloads, follow us, all that good stuff. Uh, if you have feedback on this episode or on any episode, you can email us at info at perchperspectives.com. I can't promise that we'll reply to every single email that comes in, but I read every single one that comes in and I love hearing from listeners, so please don't be shy. Uh, you can find us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at Perchspectives because we love a good pun. Uh, we're also on LinkedIn under Perch Perspectives. Most importantly, please check out our website. It's www.perchperspectives.com. Besides being able to find out more information about the company, the services that we provide, and even to read samples of our work, you can also sign up for our twice a week newsletter on the most important political developments in the world. It's free. All you have to do is provide your email address. And even if you don't want to do that, you can read the post for free on our blog. Thanks again for listening. Please spread the word about Perch Perspectives and the Perch Pod, and we'll see you out there.